Amen. You might be seated this morning. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you worshiping. You have no idea how God feels about that. Everything that he created, he created that it might bring praise and honor to him. And when you take uh, his time, uh, you say your time, well, your time is his time. How many know that? Anything that you have, my friend, it's because he gives it to you. But when you take what men consider their time and you come to worship and honor God, that's huge. That's huge. Consistency and obedience are two great things that bring honor to God and will, in fact, bring blessing and reward to you. We're talking about the pursuit of happiness. And this morning we talk about how to live a miserable life. Say that with me, how to live a miserable life. Say it again. You didn't do well that time. Here we go. One, two, three. How to live a miserable life. Some of you out there might say, you don't, have to, I don't, you don't have to tell me how. I'm just about the most miserable person that you've ever met, and we all know that. We all know people that we'd rather just not hang out with. We'd rather just stay away from them because their life is filled with misery. But here's what we do know. All the stats say more people are lonely, unhappy, and miserable than those that are living a life of love and fulfillment and joyful. How sad is that? Because we don't know how to manage our behavior. We don't know how to manage what it is that we have that comes from the love of Jesus Christ. After all, there is a spirit. We call him the devil. You might call him Lucifer. He's uh, an individual that has recorded, that God records in the Bible that says he's roaming to and fro throughout the earth, seeking whom he may devour, seeking to kill and destroy, seeking to kill and destroy. How does he do that? You see, you can be breathing and be the most miserable person in the world. You can be breathing and have just unfulfilled expectations and dreams because you feel like you've lost so many times. You can let other people, if you don't mind, control how you think about yourself. You do not have to do that. I can tell you there is no circumstance and there is no person that you know in this life that ought to be able to control you and make you a miserable person. That's why Paul writes in the book of Philippians, we call it the joy book. Paul is revealing some things that says, hey, watch out. If you want to live a miserable life, here's how you're going to do it. And he does it out of his own jail cell. He is in prison. And here it is, Philippians, take a look at it in your iPad, your iPhone, actually out of the Bible in the pew and back of you or something of that nature, Philippians 1, verse number 12. Now, I want, I want, you, I want to frame this. Paul is in prison. He is chained to centurion guards that are Caesar's special agents. And they are chained to him. And he does not know when the order will come that he will die and face death. But he writes now, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and more fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of courageousness and fearlessly. It's true that some preach out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here. For the defense of the gospel, the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing 
that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? Say that with me. But what does it matter? Let's say it again. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my what? My deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Paul's an extraordinary man of extraordinary circumstances. Let's try these four points on for size. Point number one, if you want to make your life miserable, wait to be happy until your circumstances are just right. Everybody with me? Just wait for the right circumstances and then you can choose to have a happy life. Paul writes in verse number 12 of that chapter, what has happened to me actually served to advance the gospel. That's a good, that's a good mindset. Verse number 10, he says, I know that through your prayers, and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out, doesn't look that way now, but it will turn out for my deliverance. He says, no doubt in that regard, he's referring to the fact I'm chained by the best of the best. They're here with me. You can call them SEAL Team 6, whatever you desire. They are the best. They are the strongest. They are the most notable, and I am chained here, but I'm believing that what I'm going through now will serve to be for my deliverance. Well, if I were cast into a Roman prison like that, chain, I'd say, no hope for me, buddy. I've heard the testimony of others. When these guys show up, you are in fact toast. But Paul said, I want you to know how I feel about what's happened to me and how I view my circumstances. He said, you might think I would be discouraged sitting in prison, but to the contrary, he said, that's not how I see what's happening to me. Verse 13, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard that I am in chains for Christ. What's happening to me is for the sake of Christ. What's happening to me, not because I did anything wrong, it's because I'm trying to do things right. And he goes out to Stades, quite excited about it. In the biblical days, prisoners would be chained to uh, soldiers. This happened to be Caesar's soldiers, and they could not get away from Paul. They had to flat out be there. And Paul had been trying for years, how do I get the gospel? How do I get an audience in front of Caesar? How do I get into the Roman capital? How do I get in there with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And Paul said, that's not exactly the way I thought I was going to be able to get in there, but here's what reality is. I know that now that I'm chained to these guards, here's what I'm finding out, that my message through them 
and the trail of truth is getting in to where Caesar is at. You see, Paul doesn't think he's their prisoner. Paul thinks they are my prisoners. What a great way to turn your situation around and say, hey, I'm not the victim here. I am the victor. Finally, God, through this, he's getting the gospel message into Caesar, towards Caesar's attention. And because of what's happening, he said, I'm facing my circumstances with courage and joy because I know this, that Jesus is here with me. Say that with me. Jesus is here with me. Let's say it again. Jesus is here with me. Whatever it is that's got you down, whatever it's that's pushing you back, whatever it is that's brought a sad heart, whatever disgruntledness that's in your life, whatever dream that's crashed into a burning nightmare, whatever it is that you can't make ends meet, whatever it is that fantasy turned out to be reality and reality was another nightmare, whatever it is, I'm suggesting to you that Paul is about to tell us in the process of this message how you can deal with that in spite of your circumstances. Last week we came, I, I talked to you about the happiness paradox. And it was this, I can never be happy if my ultimate goal is to be happy. If I want to be happy, my goal is to be happy, I'm going to be happy. That's not what we found out. We found out that meaning is more important than happy. It says, if you get meaning and purpose in your life, that joy and happiness is an end result because you have meaning, you have purpose. But if you just say, I'm going to be happy, here's what he says. Happiness is an illusion that it is here today and gone tomorrow. I believe I'll be happy if I get whatever the circumstances is that I desire. If I can just get that, I'll be happy then, you see, understanding that. And the most reliable research says this, that we are the worst people in the world, those that were studied, at trying to figure out what would it take to make them happy. They couldn't figure it out. They would choose wrong every single time. If I have this job, this salary, this house, this marriage, that car, that lifestyle, then I, in fact, I would be happy. But he said, happiness is fleeting. How many of you have ever owned a brand spanking new car? May I see your hand? I mean, brand spanking new car, okay? A brand spanking new car has a new car smell, a new car smell. Now, let me ask you this question. How long does that new car smell last? How many would say, buddy, I've had a new car, and that new car smell lasts about six weeks? Who would say six weeks? Some of you I know have a new car. Does that new car smell last 90 days? Anybody say 90 days? How many will say it lasts six months? How many just plain out don't know? <laughs> you haven't paid any attention. Well, here's what I know. Researchers say it lasts about 90 days. But how many know when you get that first car payment? <laughs> how many of you know it is still there long after the new car smell is gone? I mean, when you smell the French fries that have rotted and the hamburgers that have rotted and the bread from the hamburgers got mold on it and created a whole nother smell, your car payment keeps going. 
Oh, I remember when I bought this baby, I had to show it to everybody. You drove it here and there and yon, et cetera, showing off that new car. And now you get in that new car some days and you wonder, I don't know if this is worth it or not. I ain't been out to eat in so long, I'm paying this new car payment, and now the new car smell is gone. But that's what you thought would make you happy, you know? How many of you have ever thought you would receive something that would make you happy, and after you had it for a while, you came to realize, nope, that wasn't it. May I see your hand? Hopefully you're not talking about your spouse. <laughs> I thought that would make me happy. We know that it does not. People get what it is they think will make them happy, but it is not everlasting. And, and Paul is dealing with that. What is the relationship between happy, because that's what people talk about all the time, and joy? And they are not necessarily synonymous. Happiness is a feeling. Feelings are hard to define, and we know that because feeling is an emotion. Feeling is an emotion. Well, I, I feel happy today. That is an emotion. How do you know feeling is an emotion? I can tell you why. If you take a hammer and you accidentally, because no right person would take the hammer and do it on purpose, but you happen to miss the nail and you hit your finger, how many of you know an emotion? Everybody know it? Or you drop a brick on your bare feet. How many of that would create an emotion? I remember one time my car was in the parking lot over there. We were in the other building, the Family Life Center. This was not built. I don't know how it happened. I opened my car door. I went to shut it, apparently. My mind was preoccupied, and I had two fingers in the door when I shut it. Those two fingers were caught in the door. There was no wiggle room. When that happened, it created an emotion. I screamed like a baby. In the process of screaming, I dropped my keys. Now, here I am. My arms are only so long, and then the pull on these fingers was so painful, I didn't know what to do. I kicked the keys closer. I, that, that didn't help. It was emotional. What am I going to do? It's hard to pray when you're the nut that slammed your own fingers in the door. Give me greater wisdom. I came to this conclusion. My fingers are coming out of that door. And they're there. And I thought, it's time. Now, why did they have to come out? Well, I didn't want anybody to see me. Anybody else with pride out there? Hands are here. Put my knee against the door. And I prayed. Lord, don't let it hurt too much. I don't want to leave a lot of skin on my fingers in that door. If you could leave a little skin on the fingers. I'd appreciate it. On the count of three, I took it, and I, with all my might, jerked my fingers out 
Oh, my Lord, have mercy. Where do you think my fingers went first? How bad was it? How bad was it? It was that bad. It created emotion. Now, let me ask you this question. They don't hurt now. But if I build my life on a feeling, that feeling will intensify for a period of time, but it's not lifelong. It won't last forever. It won't bring me comfort. And this is what Paul is saying. If I build my feeling on whether I am a free man outside this prison, as opposed to being here chained to the guard of Caesar, then he said, it's not eternal. But while I'm chained here, uh, between Caesar's guards, the gospel, the purpose of why I live is being shared in the palace court because they're saying, hey, he's there for the cross of Christ. We often say, how are you feeling today? We don't often say, how are you thinking today? You see, happiness is that hap word. It means haphazard, perhaps, happenings, whatever's happening to me. Larry, of course, was an individual who worked in the court system. But there was a man who told the story of his experience of going and being called for jury. This man was called for jury duty, and uh, he went to jury duty. There are 140 people there, and he thought, my gracious alive, the last thing in the world that I need right now is jury duty. How many of you appreciate jury duty? You feel like you're serving your country, and you never make any qualms when you get called for jury duty. You gladly show up and say, here I am to serve my country. I didn't see, let me rephrase it, you, any, anybody else out there other than the few of you? How many of you think that it's inconvenient? How many of you are not going to raise your hand because you don't know what else I'm going to say next? <laughs> I know you. But anyway, this man went, and he was thinking and griping and grumbling. And Larry got up there, who was like an individual who was a personal friend of mine, that I'm one to Christ, Bud Dixon. Bud Dixon used to be the clerk of the circuit court here in Polk County a number of years ago. Bud's mother, one heard of the Lord. His sister, one heard of the Lord, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, this man Larry walked out there, and he said, I want to thank those of you that are here, 140 of you. I want to thank you for honoring uh, your community. Uh, I want you to know that we know that it's an inconvenience. We know that it is hard to try to get your schedule together. We are certainly going to be considerate of that if there's a dire emergency or a reason, and we're going to, we're going to let you know how much we appreciate it. On behalf of the court system, I'd like to say thanks to you for being here. On behalf of all the judges, I want to say thanks. On behalf of the, uh, the wonderful Constitution of the United States, I want to say thank you. I want you to know on behalf of those that are, that are the accused, uh, thank you for them. Uh, they're looking for justice to be served, etc. And I want you to know you're serving a great value to your community. And this man was thinking, well, <coughs> I'm feeling a little better. And Larry went on to say, and I, I want to give you a story of a 95-year-old lady who came here a couple of years ago. To, she was called for jury duty and said when she came in, 
she came and she was uh, breathing pretty heavily and she was perspiring and, and I saw her and got her to a seat. What are you here for? She said, I'm here for jury duty. He said she had a glee in her voice. She was happy. And uh, he says, well, uh, madam, uh, uh, so glad you came. Did you drive here? I thought she's She's, she drive here? She said, oh, no, I had to take the bus system. I took three buses. I got up really early so I could be here because I considered a privilege to come to jury duty. He said, well, you know, um, did you call? I mean, did you call and get a, you know, a number to see if you really had to show up? And she said, oh, I don't, I don't have one of those new touch phone deals. I've got an old rotary phone, and it it certainly did, but I want to be here. This is where I need to be. And this man who was grumbling about having to be there heard Larry as Larry's telling this story. And he's saying, listen, she considered it a privilege. In 95, she considered it honor. In 95, the sacrifice she had to go through to get here, she didn't count that at all. It was meaningless to her. Being able to show up and report for duty was important. And this man said, I came in with a chip on my shoulder. I came in murmuring and complaining. I came in taking the court system for granted. I came in. I'd rather be almost anywhere else. But after I got here, I came to the realization that I was wrong. That I should have looked at my circumstance through a different lens. And I really came to the realization that my feeling was all about me and not about serving my country and not about someone whose life was on the line and needed me on the jury to try to make a difference for them. He said, it changed my perspective on life and created a moment of fulfillment. That moment of fulfillment is called peace. Peace is different from joy. Joy is a persuasive sense of well-being. But it also is a Hebrew word called shalom. Say that with me, shalom. It's shalom. It is what Jesus lived out and what he modeled through all of his teaching. It is the shalom that Paul experiences in prison in a very persuasive way. And the circumstances were very, very, very difficult. But Paul did not allow the circumstances to get between him and his relationship to Jesus Christ. Number two. If you want to make your life miserable, compare yourself to other people. If you want to be miserable, just compare yourself to anybody else. Philippians 1, verse 15 through 18, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill, the latter do so in love, knowing that I am in here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Why would they do that? They didn't like Paul and his success. But what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. He's referring to a group of individuals that's in the church. These are not individuals that were outside the church. They are jealous of Paul's success. As a matter of fact, they prayed Paul would have less success. If Paul had less success, even in prison he has success, that they would be, they would be more happy if Paul had more pain. 
So how are we going to do that? We'll preach the gospel out of insincere motives. Instead of them saying, what can I do to help the cause of the gospel? What can I do to help Paul? They were thinking, look at Paul. He's more successful, and his ministry is more powerful than mine. So listen, I want to do what I can to bring him harm. I want to be, I want to be, I hope that I am better than Paul one day. And that was their motive. We look at one another, and we often say if someone is successful, well, they got a, they, I don't like this term, but I'll use it for, they got a lucky break, or they knew somebody, or they were born into it, or they had a silver spoon, or they just showed up at the right place at the right time. How come we can't, how come we can't be praiseworthy of someone else's success? Why do we ever have to be envious? Why do we compare ourselves to someone else? Let me just tell you this. If you do that, you have forgotten how valuable and how important you are to the Lord Jesus Christ and that you have forgotten you are fearfully and wonderfully made by the hand of the Creator. And if you pay attention to God, God will give you circumstances that will cause you to fulfill His place in the puzzle of God's will and you will accomplish things that only you can accomplish if you're walking in God's will and God's way. Somebody say amen. You're not only unhappy, you're not unhappy, you're unhappy because someone else is happy. Well, you know what, get even? I, I don't like to hear people say paybacks are really something because that's just so not scriptural. Because here's the bottom line, if you got paid back today from God just by the mistakes and the errors and the wrong thoughts you've had in the last seven days you'd be in a heap of trouble. So the lady, she died, and she went to heaven. Somebody says, thank God. And when she gets to the gate, this is a fictitious story, okay? She gets to the gate. St. Peter's there. She said, how do I get in? Peter said, all you have to do is spell one word correctly. She asked, well, what is the word? He said, the word is love. She said, oh, love. L-O-V-E, love. The gates open and she went in. She's rejoicing all the way. A few years later, Peter has trust in her now. And he said, hey, I need to run over to Starbucks and take my afternoon break. Do you mind guarding the gate here and just standing here? Somebody else comes up. Would you just, you know, you, you, you know what to do? She said, I sure do. He said, stand here and I'll be back in a little bit. Wasn't long and she's stationed at the gate. And her husband that she was married to here on earth showed up. She said, oh, wow. She said, how are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm doing great, actually quite well. She said, what do you mean by that? So good to see you. He said, well, I'm, I'm doing really well, thank you. Do you remember that absolutely not dead, gorgeous, young nurse that took care of you even when you were in hospice? Do you remember her? She said, I sure do. She was sweet. And you're right, she was absolutely beautiful. He said, six weeks after you died, I married her. You did? Yeah, I sure did. He said, then about six months after that, I won the lottery. It was $10 million. All my financial woes were over. And not only that, that house that you thought was so gargantuan, I sold it. 
It was our little home, and I brought, I'm telling you, I bought the house of all houses up on the side of a mountain overlooking the tree line and the mountainous terrain, and it's just wonderful. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's right. He said, and we're on vacation skiing in the Swiss Alps when I had an accident just a few minutes ago that brought me here. I'm so glad I made it to heaven. How do I get in? <laughs> she said, you just have to spell one word correctly. He said, what's the word? She said, Czechoslovakia. You see, she was unhappy and she was dead. <laughs> My Lord, have mercy. Paul talks about two groups of people. Two groups of people. Why can't I be happy? Happy people, he says, happy people or unhappy people compare up. This is a study. Unhappy people compare up. Unhappy people compare up. In other words, they, uh, they look at people who have more money, more success, more possessions, and they're unhappy. That's why they look at look what they have. Look, look at the money they make. Look at the talent. Look at the gifts. And look at the house. Look at the car. Look at the toys they have. They compare up. Well, if unhappy people compare up, happy people must, must compare down. You know, like, well, they don't have anything and they'll never amount to anything. That's what they thought. And that was a rational thinking. But here's what the study decided that they discovered happy people don't compare at all. Content people don't compare at all. They don't look down and they don't look up. They're just happy with whatever circumstance they're in. They have a faith and a trust in Jesus Christ to say, you know what? That's the way it is. I'm walking with Jesus and I know he has my interest at heart. So I don't need to compare to anybody else. Here's the next one. If you want to make your life miserable, go it alone. Now, I'm not talking about people that are single, et cetera, but just aside, I don't need anybody. I don't need any help from anybody. I've got a project. I'll just do the project on my own. I don't need any help. Do it by yourself. Don't involve anyone else, et cetera, et cetera. Many people looked at Paul as a brilliant but a cranky individual. They said, hey, he's as cranky as all get out. But not if you read Philippians in the first chapter, verse 3, 4, 7, and 8. He says, this does not sound like a cranky person or a go-it-alone person. He said, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have put you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That wasn't, Paul wasn't cranky. He said, hey, I'm in love with you. I, I know where I'm at, and I'm here because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But though this might put chains on my arms, it cannot chain my spirit. It cannot chain my soul. It cannot chain my mind. I am liberated in Christ Jesus and I'm going to live. Study another study that I read about longevity. 
This is what it said, and the researchers found out this. They studied the hypothesis was this, that, that, that was the people who would live the longest would be the people who had someone else to care for. That was what they thought. Hey, the people who have longevity of life are those who have someone to care for them. That, I mean, looks over them, stays with them, holds their hand, ministers to them. So that's the person who's being cared for is going to live the longest. Nothing further from the truth by a long shot. Here's what they found out after the many years of study. It wasn't the people that were being cared for that lived the longest. It was the people who were doing the caring, the caregivers, the individuals who gave themselves away. Well, that shouldn't surprise us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That was the, that was the theme of Jesus' life and His ministry. Paul says in verse number 25, and I'm paraphrasing, I'd love to go be with God, but if I keep on living, it will bring joy to your faith. And he said, it would sue me if I left right now out of these chains and happened to be in the presence of God. But I know you still need me. I know there's still a work that I can do. And I want to encourage you. I want to be an encourager. Listen carefully. Put, tuck this away in your relationship journal. It is this. For every five negative things you say, every five negative things you criticize a person, every five negative things that, that are, 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 pardon me, of all the things that you say, and you keep saying and saying and saying, here's what it says. You're going to need, of those things that you say, you're going to need five times that amount of encouragement to eradicate the negative things you say. Think with me about that. So next time you think, I'm giving them coaching. I'm giving them what they need to hear. I'm giving them what would help them. I'm giving them this. Listen, that's going to create a boundary. That's going to create a wall. That's going to create resentment. Because the only person usually that can speak negatively into someone else's life is a person that they know that praises them, encourages them, and strengthens them all the time. Then you can critique me because you praise me all the time. How many like to have a boss man like that? Sure. How many are the boss men? Maybe you ought to think about it. So here we go. Something else. You see... <clears throat> The Hebrews' word in positive, let us encourage one another daily. That's what the writer in Hebrews says. Let us encourage one another daily. What? Encouraging us on. And when we might have an opportunity rather than praising someone, whatever you do in word or deed, do it as unto the Lord. He says it's called admonition. But admonition is not critical. Admonition is something that you say that encourages a person to want to do better. Number four, if you want to make your own life miserable, adopt pessimism as a life orientation. Two kinds of optimism. There's little optimism and big optimism. Little optimism focuses on little hopes, like I'd like to find a convenient parking place at church today. And I'd also like to see somebody that I know, hope they're there today. Big optimism focuses on the ultimate picture. It says we're on the verge of something great, and it is about to happen. 
Big optimism is considered more powerful than little optimism because optimism is a personality trait that is mostly good. You can see that in Paul's writings, Paul said, I adopt big optimism. Chain? Yeah, understand. He says, it's so true that I want to be like a runner that is focused on the finish line and every fiber of my body stretches in that direction, not looking to the right or to the left, that I get across that line by the power of hope, and I eagerly expect and hope that I am going to make it. My mind is committed to that. And he writes in Philippians 1.20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You see, he said, Jesus inspires me. He loves me. He guides me. He sustains me. He trusts me. And that's why he uses a little Greek term, tizgar. That little Greek term means, and it's in there in the text, but what does it matter? Say that with me, but what does it matter? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, Sharon mentioned the other day, he said, boy, water has been a challenge at our house. Because during the Christmas week, two or three days before Christmas, hot water line under the kitchen slab. Kitchen's a busy place at Christmas. Do you know that? She's walking along and she said, that towel feels warm. I said, oh, an automatic sauna. She said, it feels warm. Better call the plumber. Okay, we did. He said, go out and do something. Check your water meter. If that little deal's running, you got a leak. If all the water's off, all the water's off and it's running, you got a leak. And if it's uh, all the water's off and it's not running, you don't have anything to worry about. Well, guess what? We had a leak. Call the plumber. Don't know if I can get to it. Oh, I know you're going to want to get to it. It's Christmas. We got to get this fixed. He took the chisel, took that piece of tile out, which is about, I don't know, 12 by 12, lifted it out, didn't break any of the other tile, dug down. Sure enough, there was the leak. He repaired it, looked like a jigsaw puzzle. By the time he got through it, did not matter to me as long as it did not leak. Poured it back in, filled it up with cement, put a new tile that we just happened to have from 25 years ago, building the house, looked as good as the others that are there, put it in place, and I said, okay, thank God, what does it matter? It's not what I said when we found out we had a leak. We rocked on maybe a month ago in the shower. No hot water. Can you imagine how much hot water it takes for this body? The shower to me is like a playpen. <laughs> I mean, know what I'm talking about. I like it to just blast you. 
I don't like a dribble shower. I have one of those handheld deals that you can flip the switch and it's, you can do, you know, just, uh, it's just beautiful. I sing. I do my best singing. And it's blasting away, but it gets cold. I change songs <laughs> when it gets cold. What in the world's wrong with it? You know, you always think, can't be the hot water heater because we just replaced that a year or so ago. Well, it was more than a year or so ago. Call the same plumber. Oh, yeah. You got a hot water heater. I thought, well, isn't that beautiful? When are you going to fix it? You know? Well, we get out there and, you know, take care of it. And he did. Something else. And something was something else that happened. And you say, why me? Why me? Well, you know what God has a right to say? Why not you? Look around you at what you have. Look, look over there. Look at what you drive. Go look at the woman you married to. I said, good Lord of mercy, forgive me, God. Why should I ever complain? 50 years coming up in July. I said, Wow. Go over and look at that lazy boy that continues to move <laughs> to different rooms. And it's like hide and seek. Every day when you come home, you get to find where it's at. <laughs> no, it's not that bad. You know. What does it matter? If I were to apply Paul's principles, I would use the little Greek word tisgar. He says it in our writings, what does it matter? Compared to what I enjoy, to compared to how I'm blessed, compared to the good things, compared to the thrills, these momentary setbacks, compared to his honor and his glory, what does it matter? So what if you have the hot water heater? Well, you get it repaired. And you might say, well, what if you didn't have the money? Somebody you know has got the money or just get used to cold showers. It's just like a missions trip. What does it matter? The point is, if you have that kind of mindset, the devil will never be able to create a circumstance whereby you are miserable. You will learn to say, God, you're totally aware of this entire situation, and it really does not matter. If the car breaks down, what does it matter? That was the attitude of the Apostle Paul. Here's what he said, I will, I will rejoice. He meant he knew that his life could end at any moment. He knew that, that the joy is not a feeling of happiness, but it's based on a condition of his soul. And he said, rejoice, and again I say, rejoice, everybody. Because he said, no matter what circumstance, you know that God is in control, God guides, God comforts, and God meets your need. So instead of staying down there in the mully grubs, begin to create the right perspective that says, God, I know that no matter what happens to your honor and your glory, you are aware. And if you wanted to change it, you could change it right now. Until then, I'm going to be content in my relationship with you. Come on, put your hands together. <laughs> Would you stand? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. 
for the abundance of your grace. We know that somebody's got it a whole lot worse than we have it. And we know that there could be worse days ahead. But God, here's what we know today. We'll take today. We'll take right now. And we'll just say, God, thank you for speaking to me through the preaching of the word. And we'll declare that, that God, in every circumstance, in every circumstance, I don't know what will make me happy. I know I thought a lot of things would. But come to find out, they didn't really make me happy. What makes me happy is to hear you say, well done. Is to hear you say, my hand is on you. Is to hear you say, hey, Paul, those chains are there. And this situation is meant for your deliverance. You've been praying to me, Paul, about getting the word into Caesar. Well, you thought you'd just be able to march right in there. Well, I'm here to tell you, I've stationed you between his best guards. And they're telling the other guards, and the word has reached the hearing of Caesar. Everybody in the palace knows the reason you are in chains. And it is for the sake of Christ Jesus. It's all about honoring you, Lord. So we ask you to forgive us and to help us and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit. You're here this morning in this room and you need your word. You got the preaching of the word. Or you're listening online and you are saying, I'm going through so much, so many things, and I have been miserable. I've been a wretched soul. I've, I've let the pressure of a relationship or a situation get to me. I've let other people get to me. I've let my circumstance that doesn't seem to change get to me. I've let, I've let little things just upset me to the degree. I just respond in a moment's notice. I forget that no matter how big the chains and no matter what it is I'm going through, it's there because God allowed it or God caused it. So in whatever state I find myself in, I'm just going to choose to be content. I'm going to tell others, go ahead and rejoice. Go ahead and give praise to Jesus Christ. Go ahead and honor him. So just in case you're here, and just in case some of you are not right with Jesus, you don't have a relationship that is vibrant, that is passionate. As a matter of fact, if you were to die today, you're not sure you'd get to the gate, heaven's gates. You're uncertain, but you can be certain right now. So I'm going to ask everybody in the room to repeat this prayer after me. Here we go. Dear Jesus, forgive me. I repent of my sins. I believe by faith. If I ask you, you will forgive me. So come into my heart. Forgive me of every deed that I have done that brought displeasure to you. Let me be filled with love that loves you, that loves my neighbor, that loves my family, that loves those that I work with, that loves my church. Fill me with that love in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God answered prayer. We're going to sing this song to end, but let me tell you how valuable. The strongest time of satanic influence is right now, every time an altar call is given. Because to be hearers of the word and not be doers of the word is a real challenge. He said, I, I want you to be not only hearers, but doers. 
God can meet your need. The culture in which we live in today gives people all kind of wrong reasons to respond to circumstances. But when we talk about eternal things, the enemy knows the minute you become obedient to Christ and obedient to a moment of the Holy Spirit moving, that it's to God's good and not his. So if you have something you say, I need to be prayed for, I need to bring that to the altar. I prayed that prayer, and I I really want to seal the deal in my heart. So I'm going to have an act of obedience. Or maybe you have someone else that you're praying for. It really doesn't matter. You know who you are. If God's speaking to you right now and saying, hey, you slide into that altar, God will do what he wants to do in and through you right now. And it might be for your own deliverance. As we sing, you respond to this altar right now. Would you come? Here we go.